I'm going to preach a sermon that's already, title's already on the screen there, but it's Removing Heaven's Handcuffs. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray and ask today that you'd help us as we consider this idea of just how much you want us to believe in you and rely on you uh, for everything in life. Lord, not just the difficult situations, not just the tough times, but Lord, even when things are going well, Lord, you want us to trust you. I'm reminded of the passage in Hebrew, Hebrews that says that without faith it's impossible to please him or to please you. And so, Lord, I pray that the sermon today would be a good reminder to us about what unbelief does. And Lord, how it not only uh, limits you, but it cripples us. And it keeps us away from having the best and your best for us. And I pray, God, today that would serve as a stark reminder. Lord, I pray that today, if there's one here in our midst that doesn't know salvation via your death, burial, and resurrection, and a total faith in that, that today would be the day that they get saved. And be with us now in this service, in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. A little untraditional introduction this morning. We're going to let the Bible kind of lay out uh, the point being made. Take your Bibles, if you would, over to Genesis chapter 1. You want to hold your place in Matthew 13. We'll come back there. But Genesis chapter 1 in your Bibles... Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 to begin with, and we're going to look at several verses in Genesis 1. Um, Pastor Mike did the adult Sunday school class for the sweetheart couples today, and he used a similar introduction to his lesson, but I promise you we did not get together on this. This was not planned. But Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, the Bible says there, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Now let me be clear that The beginning was the beginning of the heaven and the earth, but it was not the beginning of God. God has always existed. Amen? He's always existed. Uh, The the snarky, smart-aleck evolutionist wants to look at a creationist and say, okay, well, you want to look around at the beautiful earth and say, well, if there's a creation, there must be a creator. And the question they'll ask is, Who created the Creator? And to the smart aleck evolutionist, the answer is nobody. God created the, God is the Creator and God has always existed. And they come back and say, well, I can't wrap my brain around that. And I'm here to say, I'm glad that I cannot wrap my brain around an all powerful, omniscient, Infinite God. And that make, that means He is bigger than me, He's better than me, and that means I've got to trust that what He says is true. In the beginning, God created. He created from nothing. He created everything. Created everything. Look at verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. So God stepped out on nothing, and the first thing He did is with His voice, He created the heavens and the earth. Then He stepped out and He created the light. The light. Look down at verse 6 of Genesis 1. The Bible says, And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Verse 11. Uh, And God said, Let the earth bring forth grass uh, the herb yielding seed and the fruit, uh, fruit yielding, tr- uh, fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is, uh, in itself and upon the earth, and it was so. Verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the days, the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, 
uh, and for days and years. So God stepped out on nothing, and with His voice, He created the heaven and the earth. With His voice, He created the light. With His voice, He created the uh, earth, uh, the, the trees and the grass and, and the fruit and the, and, the, and the trees that would yield fruit after its own kind. He then stepped out and He created uh, uh, the difference between day and night. He created... Uh, there, the Bible says seasons, and He created a 24-hour day. He created a, a year of 365 and a quarter-day year. Look down at verse 20. It says, And God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life, and fowl that may fly above the, the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great wells and every living creature and move, uh, that moveth, uh, which the water brought forth abundantly, after their kind, and every winged fowl after its his kind, and God saw that it was good. Look down at verses 24 and 25. We get to day 6 of creation. And God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing, and beasts of the earth after his kind. And it was so. If you uh, believe or, or allow yourself to mark in your Bibles, uh, will you underline where it says, And God said, and then underline where it says, And it was so. And God said, and it was so. We're going to do something here. I need your cooperation. I need your help. I need your vocal cords. And I need you to not be shy about it. This side of the auditorium, you're going to be, and God said. So when I point at you, you're going to say, and God said. Let's see how well you can do. Ready? Here we go. Together in rhythm. Ready? Over here, you're going to be, and it was so. Don't let them outdo you. Ready? Here we go. Ready? Very good. I like the energy over here. I think they may add a little more energy than you all. Let's try it again. Ready? One more time. Ready? Here we go. And God said, and it was so. God said it, and there it happened. It was so. God created everything we have in nature with just His lips. There's a joke about a group of um, uh, scientists that went to God and said, God, we don't need you anymore. We can create humanity all on our own. We don't need you anymore. And, and God said, okay, well, let's have a contest and see who can do better. And so God got his pile of dirt and the scientists got their pile of dirt. And God looked at the scientists and said, no, 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 go get your own dirt. Go get your own dirt. God created everything from nothing. Look down at verse 26. The Bible says, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. God could have created mankind with His lips, with His words, but God chose to come down and with His very hands gather together the dust of the earth and put together mankind and then later take a rib from Adam and create a woman. What am I getting at here today is that God is capable of doing whatever He wants to do. God is, the Bible word is omnipotent or all-powerful, ever-powerful. Can I ask you a question this morning, a very profound question? Can an all-powerful, infinite God be limited by one of His finite creations? Can He? Let me read a verse of Scripture for you. 
Psalm chapter 78 verse 41 says, Yea, they turned back and tempted God. And limited, they limited the Holy One of Israel. One of Adam and Eve's offsprings, or a group of people that would have been an offspring of Adam and Eve, handcuffed God. They put handcuffs on God. They said, God, we are not going to allow you to work. They limited the Holy One of Israel. Will you take your Bibles, if you're in Matthew 13, there back in where we were, will you, will you just flip over a couple of chapters over to Matthew 16 and look at verse 19 with me. Matthew 16, verse 19. And this is the passage where Jesus tells Peter, uh, uh, Peter, Cephas, Pedro, uh, 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 Rock, Little Rock. He says, Thou art Peter, Little Rock, and upon this rock, pointing to himself, I will build my church. And he's talking about God, how God is going to use Peter in the early church there. Look at verse 19. He says, And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whosoever thou, or whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And uh, here God is telling Peter that he's going to have power to be able to loose things in heaven and earth and bind things in heaven and in earth by doing it on earth it will be done in heaven. Speaking of the power that God would give him to help grow the early church. But let me make another application out of this passage. And by the way, this is an application. I gave you the interpretation. Let me make, let me make an application I believe that fits in the canon of Scripture. And that is that when we choose to handcuff ourselves, we also choose to handcuff heaven. When we choose to bind up ourselves with unbelief, we're choosing to bind up heaven with our unbelief. How often do we keep great things from happening in our lives because we won't let God do those great things in our lives? This morning I propose that many Christians have both handcuffed themselves spiritually and handcuffed an all-powerful God. Scripture clearly shows many examples of God being limited by those who chose not to believe and then live handcuffed by their problems as a direct result. This morning, let's look at five thoughts from this passage in Matthew 13 where Jesus goes back to His hometown and how they, those people, handcuffed themselves and handcuffed heaven and see how we can learn to remove the handcuffs, the spiritual handcuffs, off of heaven. If you're taking notes this morning, and I encourage you to do that, please note number one, Christ's attempt. Christ's attempt. Look down with me at verse number 53 of Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 53. Jesus had just come from spending quite a bit of time um, uh, mentoring and counseling and leading His disciples by telling them parables. After he finishes that, he comes into his hometown. Look at verse 53. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed thence. And when he was come into his own country, 
He taught them in their synagogue. Now, oftentimes, not every time, but oftentimes when Jesus went into a town, if it was his first time in that town, he would very quickly make his way to the synagogue where he would, which would have been their version of a church uh, before the church had been created, where he would teach and he would open the scriptures, the scrolls, and he would uh, give out truth. Uh, many times he'd go in and do that, and people were just amazed at how well he knew the Bible. People would say things like, never a man has taught us with a boldness that this man teaches. In fact, one of the first acts Jesus did in his earthly ministry was to walk into a synagogue and open up the scroll to Isaiah and talk about, uh, read the passage about where Isaiah talked about the binding of the wounded and the helping of the hurting hearts and, and how that he was come to do those things. And, and here Jesus does the same thing. He goes into the synagogue to teach them. To teach them. Now, let me say here uh, uh, that Jesus already knew that these people would reject Him. He already knew it. Before He ever stepped in the synagogue, before He ever opened the scroll, before He ever said a word, He knew the answer from the people would be that they would be offended and that they would not believe. He already knew that, but He tried anyway. Let me just say this morning, and this is a nail, as I said in the early service, this is a nail that I'm going to keep on hammering as a, the pastor of this church because the apostate doctrine of Calvinism can very slowly begin to slip into a church and take over a church, and I'm here to make sure that that doesn't happen. You say, well, what does Calvinism believe? Calvinism basically teaches that God chooses a select group of people to go to heaven and the rest of the people He creates and sends them directly to hell. And I'm here to tell you today, I don't believe that not for one moment. And I believe passages like Matthew 13 uh, show that that's not true. You say, Pastor, do you believe that Jesus calls everyone to repentance? The Bible says that God calls everyone to repentance. Everyone. Uh, what does the Bible tell us in John chapter 3 and verse 16? It says, For God so loved the world. What does that word world mean? It is the root word cosmos. Mankind. Every creature. God so loved every creature. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever, anyone, whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you know that Jesus is going and willing to knock on your heart's door even if He knows you're never going to open it up to Him? Can I share a somber truth with you today? I believe there are people that sit on Baptist church pews all across this country and they're going to split hell wide open. You say, really? I'm talking about gospel-preaching churches. I'm talking about churches just like this one. And I may even be talking about this church. I don't know that to be true. But could it be we get to the judgment seat of Christ, the great white throne judgment, and one of you is standing before God? Oh, you sat on the pew, you heard the gospel preached, and Christ knocked on your heart's door, and you never open the door and let him in. I'm here today to tell you that God comes knocking at your door, whether or not you're going to open it, but I can't promise you He's going to knock forever. The day very well may come when Jesus has knocked on your heart's door for the last time, and He says, listen, I tried, I convicted, I pushed, I prod, uh, to use the Bible word, I pricked your heart, and you refused, and you refused, and you refused, and you refused 
and the day comes where Jesus says, okay, I'm done calling. Now, I don't know when that day is for you. I don't know if it's come or if it will ever come. Maybe God will call you all the way to your deathbed. I don't know, but I know this. If He stops calling, you can't get saved because Jesus has to be calling you to repentance for you to be saved. Jesus stepped into this town. He stepped into His hometown. He stepped into the area where He had grown up and He already knew that they would reject Him, but He made an attempt anyway. He made an attempt anyway. Jesus calls everyone, even if He knows that they will reject Him. Number two, we see the people's astonishment. Look down at verse 54 of Matthew 13. The Bible says, And when He was come into His own country, He taught them in their synagogues, insomuch that they were astonished, the Bible says. They were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? They were looking up at someone they had watched grow up before their very eyes. Someone who had most likely kept a low profile. And then they're sitting there, in their synagogue, and they're listening to him open the, the scrolls and teach, and their mouth is gaping wide open. Where in the world did this come from? You ever been there where you've been maybe watching someone for a long time, and you look at them and they're long and lanky and they don't look athletic at all? And you've known them for years. And then you, you, you see them on a, some kind of a sports arena. And they're really good. And your mouth is hanging open and you're going, where did that come from? I remember being in a church once where we had a, a lady who was very quiet, laid back. This was my childhood years. And kept a low profile in the church. And one day she got up to sing a special. I mean, she'd been in the church for years. Never sang in the choir. Never sang a special. Never really sang that loud during the uh, uh, congregational singing. And she joined the choir, really didn't sing very loud, and then she got asked to sing a solo. I mean, people had known this lady for years. And it was like an angel climbed in on that platform and sang. Everyone sitting there, they were astonished. And here Jesus, who had kept a low profile, gets up to teach. And as he is sharing the words of wisdom uh, from the Bible, the people are sitting there and they are shocked. They are astounded, the Bible says, at what they're hearing. Number two, the people's astonishment. Number three, notice the people's apprehension. By the word apprehension, I don't mean like, like a police officer apprehending someone. I mean more like the people's pause or the people's uncertainty. Look at verse 55 of Matthew 13. The Bible says, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? They look at Jesus and they go, Oh, hold the phone. Just a minute. Where in the world is this coming from? Are they going to accept This child who grew up, this man who had grown up as a child in their hometown, are they going to embrace him as being a great prophet and even the Messiah? What were they going to do? And in their mind, they got through listening to the message that he preached, and they got amongst themselves, and they started speaking. 
And what was it they, they pointed to? Well, the first thing they pointed to, letter A, notice Christ's family. Christ's family. The truth is, Jesus' own siblings did not believe that he was the Messiah. They did not even believe in him. Turn over to John chapter 7 in your Bibles. John chapter 7. And i got to say that, uh, can you imagine growing up in the same home as the Messiah, as Jesus? Can you imagine being a half-sibling to Jesus, how difficult that would be? Uh, you know how it is when you have that child in your class at school and they never seem to ever miss anything wrong and you know they never study, but they ace everything. They do their homework in class and they get it done before school's even over and you're at home doing homework for hours and hours and hours and, and they're just sitting around twiddling their thumbs and a test gets slid in front of them and they ace it. Pop quiz is given and the rest of the class moans and that child just loves those pop quizzes and everyone loves to hate that kind of student, right? Jesus was that way, but not just in school. Jesus was that way with everything. Someone said at home, Jesus did it! And Mary looked at him and said, now you know Jesus didn't do that. He's perfect. He's perfect. He's perfect. Who does Jesus think he is? Never gets in trouble for anything. There was no doubt some resentment that had been built up over the years. There was some strain between Jesus and his siblings. This isn't the passage in John 7, but you might remember when that Jesus was, was being thronged by the crowd. And someone pushed their way in and said, Hey, your brothers and your mother are out there waiting to speak with you. You notice in that passage that Jesus had no interest in getting to them? He said, Who are my brothers and my sisters and my mother and my father, but those that want to do the will of my father? He had no interest in getting to them. Why? Because there was some resentment there. Now, that resentment wasn't from Jesus. That resentment was from his siblings. Look at John 7, and as we read 1 down through verse 5, there is that heavy sense of sarcasm coming here from his siblings toward Jesus. And that sarcasm is noted in verse 5. We'll get down to that in a minute. The Bible says, After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry because of the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacle Tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, and here's the sarcasm, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that uh, that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou be, if uh, if thou do these things, show thyself to the world. Verse five. For neither did his brethren believe in him. Neither did his brethren believe in him. Here Jesus is there with his brothers and his sisters, and his brothers are just nailing him. If you really are who you say you are, then why are you trying to be so secret about everything? Could it be that the town rejected Jesus because his own family rejected Jesus? Now, I'm going to do a little bit of speculating here, but I will say this. I feel that I know human nature pretty well. And I doubt those siblings kept this in-house. I bet all of those brothers and sisters of his, they had best friends in town. And you know how a secret works, right? You tell your best friend, and they tell their best friend, and they tell their best friend, and before you know it, everybody knows. How many of you have experienced this? I'm going to tell you something, don't tell anyone. Hey, that usually doesn't work. As Jesus stood up there and talked, there was already animosity at home that most likely had already spilled over into the community. 
And I would imagine that they sat there and they looked at Jesus and they said, if his own family doesn't accept him, why should we accept him? Better be, notice their familiarity. Their familiarity. Finish this statement for me. Ready? Familiarity. Again, familiarity breeds contempt. What does contempt mean? You may have heard of someone being held of contempt of court. What's that mean? That means they were really, really, really out of bounds in court. I've been to court a few times in my life and traffic court and, and, and various things. And um, every time I've ever gone to court, boy, when that judge walks in, everyone, boy, they... They stand up straight and tall, and they're very, very, very respectful. Even the lawyers who deal with the same judges every day, there's a certain uh, way they carry themselves around that judge and the way they speak to that judge. And if you are held of con- in contempt of court, that's because you stepped outside of the boundaries of the way that judge was to be treated. The word contempt means this, dishonor, disgrace, or disrespect. Why was it that the city of Nazareth rejected and didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus? What made them so apprehensive about Jesus? Well, they were familiar with him. They were familiar with his family. You know, um, there was still this air around Jesus and Mary that Jesus was an illegitimate child. Right? Back then, that was a problem. That was a big problem. In fact, you were called really, really nasty names and you were shunned by society if you were an illegitimate child. Now, Jesus wasn't an illegitimate child. He was Mary conceived of the Holy Ghost and she was a virgin at the birth of Jesus. But can you understand why people would maybe have a hard time believing that? I mean, Mom, what, seriously, what if your 20-something-year-old daughter came home and said, uh, Mom, I'm expecting, and you know, but you're not married. Well, Mom, I'm still a virgin. You go, okay, yeah, right. Yeah, right. And so they knew, they knew his family. They were familiar with his family. They were familiar with the idea that Jesus was, you know, Mary may have been fooling around and that's how Jesus was born. They were familiar with his person. They had watched him grow up. They had seen him go to school. His teachers may have been sitting in the synagogue. They were, uh, they, they, they were familiar with his background. They were familiar with his carpentry skills. They had a perception of who he was, but they really didn't know who he truly was. Let me just add this as well. That when they said, this is the carpenter's son, that wasn't a compliment. That wasn't a compliment. We're uh, preconditioned in our society, and I would say this is a good thing, but we're preconditioned in our society that if you hear uh, that such and such is the son of uh, Joe Schmo and Joe Schmo uh, drives a garbage truck, we don't think anything less of Joe Schmo's son. If I say this is such and such and he's the son of uh, uh, Billy Bob and, and Billy Bob's a construction worker, we don't think anything less of Billy Bob or his son. Why? Because in America you can go from rags to riches, Right? Billy Bob's son can go to school, he can make straight A's, he can get a scholarship, he can go to a good college, he can get a big degree, and he can go out and work hard and he can make as much money and become whatever he wants to become. And so we don't think that way in America. But in in this day and time, if your father was a carpenter, then guess what you were going to be? You were going to be a carpenter. 
If your father was a garbage truck driver, they didn't have those back then, but if they had, you were going to be a garbage truck driver. So when they looked at Jesus and said, this is the carpenter's son, they weren't saying, well, he's a carpenter's son. You have to understand, they were saying, who does he think he is? He is the son of a lowly carpenter. And he's going to stand up and tell us about the Bible? Only the Pharisees and sons of Pharisees get to do this. He doesn't get to do that. That's not his role. Why was it that they were apprehensive? Because they were familiar with him. I'm so glad, i got to add this in here, I'm so glad that there wasn't Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all those things back in the day of Jesus. What would have happened? You see, when Jesus left home and he went to these other cities, nobody knew Jesus' past. Right? But what if there had been social media? Jesus would have been trending. And not in a good way. The reporters would have flooded Nazareth and they would have, re- they would have recorded interviews and, and they would have found, oh, uh, they would have been digging up dirt that wasn't true. There would have been all this gossip about Jesus. It would have totally, they would have totally tried to discredit Him. And the whole nation would have rejected Jesus the way Nazareth did. Can I say today that in the U.S. of A., One reason why many people don't accept Jesus is because they're familiar with Jesus. You hear what I'm saying to you today? They're familiar with a version of Jesus that just isn't true. I could go to Walmart this afternoon and I could stop ten people in Walmart and I could say, tell me who Jesus Christ is. And probably eight or nine or all ten of them would be able to say, "Um, he's in the Bible, Um, he died on a cross. Is that an accurate statement? I think most everyone knows who he is, but they don't really truly know who he is. See, they're like the city of Nazareth. They know who Jesus is, but they don't really know who Jesus is. And because we live in a country that is familiar with the name of Jesus Christ, many people have already made up their minds and what they're going to do with him. Brother Randy Johnson was in the 830 service who's also here Wednesday night. I've uh, enjoyed getting to know the Johnsons. Uh, they served the Lord in India and in uh, another country, I believe it's Burma, uh, distributing Bibles and, and, and whatnot. Uh, I remember Brother Esposito being here at our missions conference and talking to Brother Esposito. Both of those men serve in the 1040 window, the longitude-latitude lines of the 1040 window there. And most of the people that live in the 1040 window have never even heard the name of Jesus. But can I tell you that it's probably easier to get one of them to be saved than it is someone at Walmart? Because you get to introduce to them the person of Jesus. And you get to tell them the whole story. If I stop the average person right here, oh, they're already familiar with it, so no, I, I, don't, I don't need to hear anymore. I've already got my mind made up. But Christian, can I tell you that you may be guilty of it as well? Well, you sit up straight and tall and listen to me on this point here. You come to church and you're familiar with preaching. You're familiar with the Scriptures. You're familiar with the Bible. You're familiar with Christianity. You're familiar with the ins and the outs. And what happens with time is that we cease to let Jesus' power be a factor in our lives. And that familiarity begins to breed a disrespect in our hearts that limit God. Apprehensive. They were apprehensive. Christ's family, apprehensive. 
Why? Because of everyone's familiarity. I hasten. Number four, notice the people's self-arrest. Look back at Matthew chapter 13 with me in verse 57 and verse 58. The Bible says there, And they were offended in him, because Jesus said, Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now, in the beginning of the sermon, I talked about how Jesus stepped out on nothing and He created everything. I talked about how that uh, Jesus is an all-powerful God. And I posed the question, can an all-powerful God be limited in His power by His finite creation? And the answer is actually yes. Yes. Here we see that these people, these Nazarenes, they limited what Jesus wanted to do. How did they do that? They did that by shackling themselves. And by shackling themselves, they shackled heaven. Letter A, notice, they were chained by rejection. They were chained by rejection. They sat there and listened to him him teach. Next, they acknowledged his abilities by their astonishment. After they got through listening to him, they got in their little circles and their groups and they looked around at his family. They began to draw some conclusions based off what his family had said and, and, and the character of his family. They thought back to him being a little boy that was running around their city and him being a very quiet young man and they remembered, uh, they, they, and they had, uh, remembered how he was and who he was. And then they considered all of this, the Bible says, And they were offended in Him. What does that word offended mean? It means caused to sin. They looked at all of this and they were caused to sin. Why? Because they rejected, flat out rejected, God in the flesh. What happens when you reject God in the flesh and you reject Jesus? Well, Jesus can no longer do anything for you if you're going to reject Him. Let me say this morning that I can guarantee you this, that Nazareth was a city that had many needs. Nazareth was a city that needed a physician to heal their sick. Nazareth was a city that needed a teacher to change their wrong mentalities and help those that were lost in their way mentally. Nazareth was a city that needed a Savior to heal them from their sin. But Nazareth chose to reject the great physician. And as a result, the blind of their city remained sightless. The deaf of the city of Nazareth remained in their state. The lame, while they walked in other cities, the lame never did walk in Nazareth. The dumb, those that could not speak, the dumb never did speak. And the lepers died in their leprosy. Why? Why? Because they put the shackles, the handcuffs of rejection on. And they said, we reject the great physician. Nazareth didn't just reject the great physician. Nazareth rejected the world's greatest teacher that's ever lived. And as a result, the confused remained confused. Those that were seeking for the truth, because they rejected the truth, they never found their answers. 
Nazareth, you have rejected the great physician. You have rejected the world's greatest teacher. But most sadly, you have rejected the Messiah, the Savior. My friends, as a result, most of the people that lived in the city of Nazareth, they died in their sins and they split hell wide open. They rejected their Jesus. They rejected the Christ. And because of their rejection, they became shackled, handcuffed, chained. I'm going to hear today to tell you that, my friend, if you have rejected the saving grace of Jesus, if you've rejected the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, He lived, He died, He rose again for your sin, if you're rejecting the person of Jesus Christ, then you are handcuffing heaven and you are sealing your fate to hell. And I'm here today to tell you, take the handcuffs off and stop rejecting Jesus. Letter B, they were chained by unbelief. Look down at verse 58 of Matthew 13. The Bible says, and he did not many works there because of their unbelief. Unbelief. Turn back over to Matthew chapter 9. Let's look at a couple places here in Matthew. Matthew chapter 9. Well, how big of a deal is unbelief to God? It's a big deal. In fact, unbelief is the worst sin a person can commit. It's worse than the sin of murder. It's worse than the sin of suicide. It's worse of a sin than violating a child as an adult. It's worse of a sin than rape. It's worse of a sin than uh, any other sin you can name. Uh, Those sins I just listed have never sent a single person to hell. There's only one sin that sends a person to hell. And it is the sin of unbelief. If you choose not to believe in Jesus, then my friend, you have committed the unpardonable sin. You have committed the sin that will send a person to hell. You've got to believe in Jesus. You've got to believe in His saving grace. You've got to believe in His power. Matthew chapter 9, we, verse 22, we find the story of the lady that uh, uh, reached in through the crowd and just touched the hem, the very bottom of the garment that Jesus was wearing, and she touched it out of faith. Look at verse 22, the Bible says, But Jesus turned him about, and when he saw her, he said, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. And the woman was made whole from that hour. What caused the lady to be healed? Her faith. Her faith, she believed. Look down at verse 27. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 27, the Bible says, And when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed Him, crying and saying, Thou Son of David, have mercy on us. And when He saw, uh, and, and when He was come into the house, the blind men came to Him, and, and Jesus said unto them, Believe ye that I am able to do this. They said unto Him, Yea, Lord. Then touched He their eyes, saying, Watch this, According to your faith, According to your faith, be it unto you. How were the blind men healed? Jesus said, okay, the power to heal you is here. But the power is not yours until you believe in me. Until you believe in me. Guess what? The blind men were healed. Why? Because there is a power. There is a power that comes through faith. Turn over with me to Mark chapter 9 and verse number 20. While you're turning there... Let me read a verse for you out of Luke chapter 17, verse 19. 
It says, speaking, Jesus was speaking to a leper here. The Bible says, and he said unto him, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. Mark 9, I'll join you there in a minute. Go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. The leper came to Jesus and he was struck with leprosy. He had no hope of living. In fact, he was going to die a very miserable death. And Jesus said to him, I see the faith that's in your heart. And that faith is the agent that has healed you. Mark chapter 9, we find a story where Jesus comes down off the Mount of Transfiguration to a man who is a child who is possessed with a demon. Look at verse 20. The Bible says, And they brought him unto him. And when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming. And he asked his father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said of a child, and oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. Watch the the, uh, doubt here in the voice of the man. But if thou canst do anything, if, if, if thou canst do anything, Have compassion on us and help us. Sounds like a cynic, doesn't it? If thou canst do anything. Contrast that with the Roman centurion. He said, no, 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 Jesus, you don't even need to come to my house. Uh, I know you can do it. Just say the word and he'll be whole. Jesus marveled at the man's faith. That's not where this man is. If thou canst do anything. Look down at verse 23. Notice how Jesus hits the ball back at him. Jesus saith unto him... If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. The man looks at Jesus and said, If you can do something, will you do it? And Jesus said, If you can believe, I'll do it. The man was a cynic. And Jesus called him out on it. Verse 24, Straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. Now let me just let me just back up and show some sympathy to to this poor father. This dad had been on a long, hard journey. Somewhere as a child, somewhere in the childhood years, his his son had become possessed of a demon. And this poor father, no doubt, had tried everything. He'd been to every doctor in town and in the area and had gotten no results. This poor man had probably gone to sorcerers and men of divinations and tried to get them to, through, through the power of Satan to get, get this demon cast out of his son. And he had had no hope, he had no success. This man is at his wit's end with his son. His son has cast himself in the fire and, and cast himself in waters. And, and his son is, is foaming at the mouth. And the father is broken and doesn't know what to do. Life has made him very cynical about anything that can help. And he hears about Jesus and how Jesus can heal his son. How Jesus had cast out other demons. He makes his way to Jesus, but Jesus is up in the Mount of Transfiguration. With Peter, James, and John, the other nine disciples are down there at the base of the mountain. These other disciples had cast out demons and been given the power to do that. 
And so this man brings his son to the other disciples, and the disciples, through the name of Jesus, tries to expel the demon. And it didn't happen. Can you understand why maybe he he questioned whether or not it could happen with Jesus? This man was broken. This man didn't know what to do. Jesus comes down out of the mountain and he looks at Jesus and he says, I don't know if you can do it, but if you can, if you can, would you help my son? Some of you here today, you sit here and you have gone through trial and problem and hurt. And you have tried everything you can to try to fix it. You've been to doctors, you've been to psychologists, you've tried medicine. And finally, when you get to your wit's end, you turn to Jesus and you say, I don't know if you can help me, but if you can, will you help me? Jesus wants to say the same thing to you that he said to this man. It's not if I can, it's if you can believe. If you can believe, all things are possible. And that man with a broken heart throws himself on his knees before Jesus with tears streaming down his cheeks. He looks at Jesus and he says, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. With all my heart, I believe. And with a part of me that doesn't believe, will you please take it away? Life has made me cynical. Life has made me hurt. I don't know if I believe, but I want to believe. Jesus looks down at the foul spirit in that young man and He rebukes it. That demon leaves that boy. Jesus goes over, verse 27, lifts him up by the hand and the boy arises. My friend, the question isn't today, can God do it? The question is, can you believe in a God that can do it? These Nazarenes, these Nazarites rather, they had taken spiritual handcuffs and they had shackled themselves. And by doing so, they had shackled God. How many of you in this room today God cannot do a great work in your life because you are wearing spiritual handcuffs and you have shackled heaven. I'm here today to tell you to take away the unbelief and start believing that God can. God can. Number one, we see Christ's attempt. Number two, the people's astonishment. Number three, the people's apprehension. Number four, the people's self-arrest. Number five, and this is a really, really neat truth. We see his brother's abasement. Earlier we saw how that his brothers sarcastically called him out and belittled him. They, they, they clearly didn't believe who he claimed to be. They, they, um, they were in denial that they were uh, half-brother to the Messiah. Well, I'm here today to tell you that At least two of those brothers, they turned it around. Look look with me at verse 55 of Matthew 13, if you're back there. The Bible says, 
This is the people speaking of Jesus. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Notice the brethren's name here. And his brethren, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. James and Judas. James and Judas would write the books of James and Jude. These were the brothers of Jesus that ended up writing those books. Do you know that somewhere along the way, Somewhere along the way, James and Jude had to surrender their heart and say, we were wrong about our brother. We were wrong. We surrender. We give up. We were wrong. Letter A and B that I'm about to share with you are the keys that unlock the handcuffs that we wear in unbelief and rejection. Letter A, notice, to believe means... First, to surrender. To surrender. Will you, will you quit fighting against the Holy God? Will you quit rejecting Him? Will you quit walking around with, oh, I just don't know if God can do it. God's not this little tiny thing that you put in your pocket and you pull out whenever you need Him. No, God measures the, the universe with a span. That means from His pinky to His thumb, He measures the universe. There is nothing that God can't do if you'll just remove the handcuffs and let Him go. But first, if you're really going to believe, you've got to surrender your will and your way of wanting to do things and your ideas and my way or the highway attitude is got to go. And you got to say, Lord, I don't just surrender some. I surrender all. I surrender all. That puts the key right there in those handcuffs and it unlocks the handcuffs so God can begin to do a great and mighty work in your life. Oh, pastor, you say, I believe that Jesus can do anything. Then to you I'd say, prove it. Talk is cheap. Put your actions where your mouth is. Put your actions where your mouth is. Start surrendering your heart to the Lord. Let me tell you, let me share with you how this works. If you're saved today, you have the Holy Spirit of God inside of you, and the Holy Spirit of God comes to you with a list of sins that you are committing. And He says, hey, why don't you work on these things? And you, and, and you know what most Christians do, right? Nah, I'm good. I'm good. I don't want to work on that. They shoo away the dove of the Holy Spirit. But what happens when we take that list and through the power of Christ we begin to, to, to stop doing this and start doing this and stop doing this and start doing that? You know what happens when we check off the list? The Holy Spirit comes back to us with another list. <laughs> he says, good job on that one. i got another one for you. Why don't you work on those? And you take that list and you look at it and say, that's a sin? What? What? And you get in the Bible and, oh yeah, I guess it is a sin. Well, I guess I need to stop. Man, I can't believe that's a sin. But God, I, I don't want to stop doing that. I don't want to start doing that. I surrender all, not just some. Okay. Check, 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 check. And man, you're feeling good about yourself. You got all that under control. You know what the Holy Spirit does? He comes to you with another list. And then another and then another. You say, well, when did the list stop coming? The list stopped coming when you get to heaven. There are always things we need to tweak and clean up on and prove. You're going to surrender? And by the way, the second you stop surrendering, you put those handcuffs back on heaven. You put those spiritual handcuffs back on yourself. 
James and Judas had to turn around and say, we were wrong. Our brother is the Messiah. We surrender to His calling on our lives. I didn't mention this in the 8.30 service. This actually dawned on me sometime between the 8.30 service and before the service here started. But, you know, James wrote basically the book of Proverbs in the New Testament. Where do you think he got all that wisdom from? Maybe it was walking the earth with his brother all those years. Just a neat little thought there. To believe means to surrender. Secondly, to believe means to serve. To serve. Will you turn your Bibles over and we're done in Matthew 13. Turn your Bibles over to James Chapter 1 and verse 1. I'm almost done. This is the last point of the message and I'll wrap it up. James chapter 1 and look at verse 1 there. By the way, God in heaven told James what to write. And I'm sure Jesus was sitting right next to him saying, Hey, make sure you get this and this in there. Look at this, verse 1. James, a servant of God and... Of the Lord Jesus Christ. A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. A couple little neat things there. First, um, he calls himself a servant. A servant. James, a servant. A doulos. A slave. A slave for the Lord. A servant for the Lord. Uh, Lord, not only do I surrender to you, I surrender for your service. But it doesn't just say a servant of God, because James could have written this verse to say, James, a servant of God to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. But it doesn't say that. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just and of Jesus, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here, James, the brother of, of Jesus, is admitting that yes, Jesus is my brother, but Jesus is also the Christ, the Messiah. How many of you here are the oldest sibling? Would you raise your hand if you are the oldest sibling? How many of you here have an older sibling? Would you raise your hand? Everybody's hand should have gone up at some point unless you're an only child. Amen? How many enjoy being the oldest sibling and you get to kind of push everyone around and you get to manipulate them a little bit and get them to, you know, do everything you want them to do? I watch Matthew do it with April all the time and um, I was talking to Angela about uh, who leads who in our home and she mentioned, yeah, um, April does sometimes lead her brother, but Matthew's very good at manipulating April. The other day, uh, April was at the store and she asked if she could buy a toy. And, and I looked at her and I said, do you want to buy that or does Matthew want you to buy that? Well, Matthew wants me to buy that. <laughs> Some older sibling manipulation there. Um, Jesus was the oldest sibling. And so I'm speaking strictly from a fleshly standpoint here. Uh, I am the oldest of seven. I've got six little brothers and sisters. My parents took that verse so hardly about be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. They, uh, they definitely have done their part. Um, my little brothers and sisters look up to me, but they never will admit that they look up to me. You know what I'm talking about? They'll never admit it. You know, it's almost like the spirit of competition. Here, J- James had to set down that spirit of competition and say, Jesus, Yes, my half-brother, but he is my Lord. He is the Christ, and I am his servant. Some of you today need to do the same thing. Yes, I'm a joint heir with Christ, 
I am his brother. I'm the brother of Christ in that I'm a son of God and he's the son, the son of God. But he's not just my brother. He's the Messiah. He's my savior. And I am to serve him. The larger point here is his brother's abasement. They went from this, 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 uh, uh, a boisterous, sarcastic attitude in John 7 to where James comes under and says, I'm his servant. He's my Lord. Turn over to the book of Jude. Jude only has one chapter, so Jude in the first verse of the chapter. And this more solidifies the fact that James and Jude uh, were the brothers of Jesus. Look there, it says Jude, the servant, again, the servant of Jesus Christ. Not just the servant of Jesus, Jesus the servant of, uh, Jude, Jude the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Brother of James, so J- Jesus, James and Judas, all siblings there, the servant of Jesus Christ. Notice the abasement here. The abasement here. How do you take the handcuffs off of heaven and hand the handcuffs off of you? Christian, are you surrendered to the Lord? And are you serving the Lord? Are you serving the Lord? You can take the handcuffs off to get saved by surrendering to salvation. But have you put them back on God when it comes to the way you live the Christian life? It's time to get that little two-key keychain out. Of surrendering and service. And say, I've been playing games this long enough. I'm ready to surrender my heart to what God has for me. And I'm ready to serve no matter the cost. Don't handcuff heaven through your unbelief. Surrender and serve. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed this morning.